Welcome, everyone. This is ATC Office Hours, and we have a very special episode today. I am joined by Dr. Rock Gaswa, the professor from the University of Nebraska Lincoln. Welcome, Rock. Thank you, Micah. I really appreciate the invitation and uh, looking forward to the conversation. And I will announce right now, we were supposed to be joined by Dr. Frank Rossi, who informed us just this afternoon that he is unable to join us this evening. So we decided to go ahead and continue with this discussion. The topic is, uh, why are we cultivating so much? And so we're going to talk a little bit about cultivation, a little bit about sand, a bit about organic matter management of fine turf. And we'll answer questions if people have them. And we hope that Dr. Rossi will be able to join us at a future date. So we're not going to talk the subject to death today, are we, Rock? No, we are not. We're going we're gonna to skim the surface a little bit unless the questions get deep. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Yes. So um, I, I want to explain how I came to want to talk about this with you and Frank. Um, sometime last summer, I, I think it was in July, uh, I was reading some old articles and I came across an article that Frank had written in the year 2000. And it, I think it was one of his uh, Golf Week Superintendent News articles. And um, that article said and I, I made some notes here. The article said he, he was writing about a superintendent who, had, who told Frank that he had not airified greens in almost 20 years. So that was going back to the early 1980s then. And so Frank asked the question in his article. He said, if, if that's possible, and if there's already so much sand in root zones, why as an industry are we so committed core aeration why are cultivating so much so that was on my mind in july because i'd i'd read that frank had written that and i talked with frank and he said well if we're going to talk about that topic there's somebody who needs to join us <laughs> who, who's you so um i know you've done a lot of research about this and i know you're familiar with that story and as we were getting ready for this call, you told me that you'd had a talk, uh, I think with Paul Vermeulen maybe, and also you talked with superintendents back in the 80s who were getting good results with not aerating. So tell me a little bit about your story um, with this topic. Well, it was, you know, I think Frank and I are talking about the same superintendent that sort of got this idea going, right? And um, yeah, he's a Michigan superintendent, great golf course. He's now retired. Um, but, you know, he told me when I went started school there in 80 at Michigan State in, um, you know, 82, 83, I, we went out to his course and, you know, we were talking and everything. And I said, man, your greens look amazing. I don't see any dimples. I don't see, you know, just the, the, the uniformity. And this was back when we weren't mowing tight and probably putting on way too much nitrogen. But that aside, it uh, it was clear to me that, that they had a different look to him. And he goes, well, I don't I don't pull a core. And I said, excuse me. He goes, well, I don't, I don't pull a core. And I said, well, have you, well, is that something you're trying? He goes, no, I haven't pulled a core in forever. 
and and he by forever he's at that point in time it was like 15 years and he did that for almost 25 years where he didn't pull a core then subsequently and also it's the michigan state influence you know paul virilian was working for us as an undergrad student and then when he became a usga agronomist he asked me why do we why do we pull a core and i was thinking about it and you know we just done a bunch of construction work with some usga funding and i said well that's an interesting question and he goes well you know, you should take those plots that you've got that you've had in for 10 years and you should go in there and not pull a core and pull a core. So then we set that work up. Um, and then Chaz Schmidt was the person, you know, the person that did the work. He's now at, I believe it's your alma mater at Oregon State and doing some really good work That's there right. now. Right? And um, he, we pretty much showed that a solid and a holotype are not different. So, you know, th- this is when I started thinking, so maybe we need to rethink a little bit what we're doing because we did it because everyone did it for years and years and years. And that was just the beginning. And I've spent 20, 25 years working on this idea and we're seeing some change in the industry, which is really cool. Um, but uh, probably not at the level that I think as a researcher, Hey, you should jump all over this right away. But people are reluctant to change. But that's sort of a, in a nutshell, Michael, what kind of where this went, but there were people talking about this in the eighties, right? Yeah. Oh, that's that's the thing that um that strikes me is people were talking about it in the 80s and getting good success with it in the 80s and yet um as recently as 2014 i was making recommendations in seminars and writing articles suggesting that people should be core aerating to remove 15 to 20 percent of the surface area per year so that over a five-year period, you essentially could replace all of the surface area, assuming you didn't have any duplicate duplication of, of uh, cores, and that you were adding per year what would be 40 to 50 cubic feet per 1,000 square feet, which is uh, 12 to 15 millimeters of sand by depth per year. And... I stopped making that recommendation sometime in 2014, I think. But what I see as I go around is a lot of people, like I was, I, I was, I was, I was really influenced by the Green Section Record articles from 2001, 2002 era, uh, and by Dr. Carroll's research about the four percent organic matter in the top two inches of the root zone being kind of a critical level. Um, so we want to keep the organic matter less than 4% in the top two inches. I was really influenced by that number because I thought, you know, it's so easy to have that number and just stay below it. And I was influenced by those green section record articles that suggested the, that amount of surface removal and that amount of sand top dressing, because I, it was written by the agronomists from the Southeast region. So they're dealing with the the transition zone, the places like uh, uh, Atlanta that doesn't even really even have so much bent grass anymore, but places like Augusta that does have some bent grass. And you get down further south, you've got the ultra dwarf Bermuda grasses. And that area kind of overlaps with a lot of places in the world that's very difficult to grow grass. And I didn't want people to have their greens fail. So I thought if there's, if these are the standard recommendations of 4% organic matter that we want to stay below, 
and this is the amount of sand top dressing that's necessary because I hadn't done any research in this area. So I assume the people that are writing the articles and seeing a lot of golf courses are going to know this better than I do. So I was very influenced by that. And I, um, I, I thought, well, this is what we need to do in order to make sure that greens don't fail over time on a sand based system. But then your research, uh, you know, eventually kind of got into my mind of like, well, wait a second, you've done research that shows pretty clearly that solitine and holotine absolutely doesn't make a difference in what the organic matter content will be. And then the big survey that you did with Chaz um, came up with a top dressing number that was uh, uh, less than half of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's less than half of the lower level of what I was recommending. And all of a sudden that matched a lot better with what people were telling me that they were actually doing. And so somehow, I mean, it took me a long time. It took me a long time to get my head straight, uh, with, with this particular topic, but I, I feel like as an industry, we, we have a long way to go to, to do this more efficiently because now we can see situations like, um, I don't know if you, if you've seen what Chris Tritabal has been doing over the past couple of years, but he's been putting sand top dressing at a rate that's probably closer to 10, right? So instead of 18, it's 10, something like, like three millimeters of sand per year. And the organic matter is staying constant because we're testing it pretty accurately. So, um, I think there's some opportunities in a site specific way to really really just apply exactly the amount of sand that's necessary and it may be less than than what we thought before and i don't know how much cultivation is necessary because when once you start getting down to to sand amounts that are that low i don't know if you even need to punch a hole to get it into the root zone i 100 percent agree and i'll back up a little bit when we look at that the magic number and i think you know it's the christmas season and i wanted to upset anybody but you know santa claus isn't real nor is the easter bunny and i don't think there's any magic number either i think that is and i think you use the term site specific mike i think i agree because you know we have technology now where we can measure you know growth potential the pace model or you can actually measure clipping volume right so you know how much it's growing right you you know how much it's growing so certainly we need to match that but if we go back to that work that you know, was done by Bob Carroll, and he did a really nice piece of work on bent grass in the Atlanta area, right? And hit, and, and they were trying to document what it was that was causing these failures, because they were having green failures that were just pretty catastrophic. And I think we all remember that if we're old enough. And then he came up with a number about three and a half percent. And then there was another piece of work, though, that was interestingly used. It was cited by the USGA agronomist. And I think their intentions were very good because they were trying to come up with a number to be helpful to the end user, right? But that was Ed McCoy's work where he was doing those sand-based root zones, primarily for sports fields, really. But he didn't grow any grass on them. He just did soil physical properties of various mixes. So uh, mm-hmm. so it, he said it, would, it can't be more than 3.5%. Well, 3.5% by, you know, by weight is like 40 percent by volume and of course we wouldn't build a green out of, i mean he was doing the science did a nice study got it published and everything else but i think that got interpreted as a magic number of some kind that it was between three and a half and four percent 
And I can understand why you're confused because I was too, because I'd go on a course that it would have, you know, seven, eight, nine percent. I said, oh, we got to do something about that. And what do you do? You start yeah. putting the sand well, on, and if you need to put on forty, you're going to have to punch a hole of some kind, right? And and um, so I, I, you know, I, I can understand the 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 route you went, and we, you know, we sort of paralleled a little bit, Micah, that you know, of the thinking. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. Okay, maybe a lot older than you, but at the end of the day, um, I think I'm actually pretty optimistic because we've done some surveys. I used uh, Bill Kreuzer's Greenkeeper app to survey a bunch of superintendents and and ask them about their changes. And we had worldwide, I mean, up into Europe and um, um, in the, into Asia and whatever, they all filled out this form. And they, they showed that they had um, increased their level of solid tining and had decreased the level of uh, hollow tining. But the thing that surprised me is they had increased the amount of sand they were putting on. And I increased. think that's the next step, right? It, I think that's the next step that we need to find how to make sure that we're not, because, you know, certainly there's a cost associated with sand. There's some playability issues or loss of play. But I think when you're putting down three millimeters, like Chris, you mentioned is, I think that gets incorporated relatively easy, maybe a light verticutting or whatever. Um, but then we start getting into another issue with what, what about the, the sand particle size, right? Well, and well, Jim we've, we've... Work, you know, he's showing that you can get away with the fought medium fines um, as long as you punch a hole in the spring and the fall. And his work was only core. He didn't have a solid tine in there. But, you know, as Man, long I've... as you put some medium course in there in the spring and fall, you can do that and not compromise the surface of the green. So I rambled on there a little bit, but there's a lot going on here, Micah. <laughs> Man, there is a there's a lot going on rock and i've got a lot of neurons firing in my mind or something and i can't take notes fast enough because a lot of the things that you're talking about um are are things are are avenues of discussion that i want to explore a little bit further or or add some comments on so i'll try to remember that and um uh, i just want to remind everybody if you want to ask a question or make a comment uh, you can do that in the chat on YouTube, and it should show here. If you're watching on LinkedIn or on Facebook, it should um, it should come over here in, in 10 or 20 seconds or something. So I don't see any comments yet. But if you want to ask a question or, or put it in the chat, please do that. And Rock and I should be able to see it and, uh, and give an answer. Um, so one thing uh, you mentioned was the organic matter um like it turns out that that as i've been doing more of this testing in a more accurate way i'd always seen that the soil organic matter by soil organic matter i mean what we get on a nutrient test uh, the standard way of measuring soil organic matter that goes down to the depth of the root zone basically and you remove all the plant material this is how i've started describing it i've just I've, I've been explaining this, the, the differentiation rock between the, the traditional soil organic matter and some of the new ways of testing where we leave all the plant material on. And I say that the, uh, the, soil, society, the, the soil scientists, they are interested in soil organic matter. And when they look at something like a root or thatch or something, they, th they don't think of that as soil. They think of that as plant material. So they don't want that in their soil sample. So when they're defining soil organic matter, 
it's very natural for them to get rid of all the plant material. And the laboratory procedures are designed very well to do that. And so the sample will be dried and crushed and passed through a sieve. And any of that material that is not humus, it it it's too big and it's it's not decomposed yet. And so it will stick on that screen. And that that makes total sense when you're trying to do soil organic matter. But for turfgrass managers, we need that soil organic matter number because that's a, a useful number for, for soil management purposes. But when we're doing the sand top dressing and the cultivation and trying to get the playing surface to react just right for foot traffic and ball bounce and a mower rolling across it and everything, now we we all of a sudden get really interested in the thatch and in the 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 roots and in the stolons and the rhizomes and the stems and the all of the things that a soil scientist would say is not soil so so we were measuring something different so i i i still use the term organic matter out of habit but sometimes i try to say total organic material or soil organic material um, when i'm referring about everything organic the way that a turf grass manager looks at it because we i'm sure that we all look at it as this is organic this is mineral right anything that's a plant material is organic matter anything that is um soil is mineral but a soil scientist would look at it as plant material that they want to exclude so um yeah i find that i find I, that I, almost humorous because SOM, the, the standard method for SOM tells you take the plant off, but it was designed for agronomic crops, right? It wasn't designed for that very unique situation. And I've, I've mentioned it to you in the past, you know, we're, the USGA has recognizes that and they've funded a group of us, um, Jim Murphy, myself, Doug Soldat and Doug Lindy um, to, you know, come up with a method that's specific for, you know, a, a golf green and, and, so that we have a method, right? Because everyone uses SOM, the Triple S, you know, Soil Science Society of America. And it says, and then it sets the depth. And, you know, you're a big proponent of, you know, sampling by either one, two, three, or two, four, six, right? And, I, you know, I think that probably is where we should have been a long time ago. The work that Chaz did, as good as I believe that is, and I'll stand by that work a, a lot, is that the, um, is that we sampled to three inches. Well, if the green was, you know, eight years old, that that whole zone was organic, right? I mean, it had a mm -hmm. lot of organic matter. And if it was a new green that was less than a less than a year old, you know, that was mostly mineral matter. So we bias the results with a method that's not designed for what we are actually looking for. And what are we looking yeah. for? We want to know how much organic matter is going to compromise, keep moisture at the surface, which we don't want. You know, we want it firm and fast, and that's not what moisture does for us. So it's an interesting. Um, it's just an interesting thing. And I, I'm just, I'm actually a little bit amazed that somebody, you know, Jim Bird way back when, you know, the father of turfgrass science, he, he said, you know, this is what we do. And, and, and he talked about the idea that, you know, thatch and thatch mat, you know, he delineated the two, that one, the mixture of mineral matter and organic is the mat layer. And that's what we're interested in, right? We're interested in that. Mm -hmm. We're interested in the top growth and we're interested in where as, as deep as the root zone goes. And for the most part, except for maybe some of the warm season grasses. I don't do warm season grasses, but you know, they may be a little bit deeper, but you, do we really need to go six inches like the SOM method tells you to go? Well, a lot of times yeah. you don't have roots down there. <laughs> well, that's, that's not the number that you want to use to determine uh, how much sand to apply. That's for sure. So oh, yeah, no doubt. 
So as I, as I, as I've started paying more attention to this and uh, measuring the organic material more carefully, uh, I've started noticing that I'll, I'll generally have people when they're doing this type of testing, I, I recommend for an 18 hole facility, please do six greens. So sometimes the OM2 number, uh, which is the organic material right at the surface, it might vary on one green, it might be 6%. And on another green on the same course, it might be 8%. And sometimes this will be from a course that I've never been to before. In fact, I recently did one from a client in Ontario, Canada, and I wrote afterwards, and these were the numbers, the, the lowest one was like 6%, the highest one was like 8%. And I wrote and I said, Hey, by the way, is that 8% from a good growing environment? And is the 6% the lowest one from a, a poor growing environment? And then the superintendent wrote right back and said, yes, uh, that's exactly it. This is, you know, this is a good environment. The other one is a is is the worst growing environment if we ever have winter kill it's on this green and this one's got a lot of shade and so on and it turns out that that seems to be quite consistent i don't know if you've seen this with any um uh, of the data that you've looked at but for a lot of uh different grass types i've seen this uh where the greens that are in the open sunny areas with good air movement and have the best growing environment over time they accumulate more organic material near the surface and so all of a sudden it kind of inverts what we had thought that instead of thinking of organic matter as being a problem of like this is something that we have to dump a whole bunch of sand to manage and get down if you actually go survey good turf versus bad turf your good turf has more organic matter than the bad turf the turf growing under the better growing conditions and you know we're I mean, we've done enough sampling to see, um, I mean, I'd, sometimes we need to compare notes and see how many samples we've, you know, you, you, you've done on your own and how much I've done with, you know, four or five different students, right? But at the end of the day, we know that entry exit points on a green or a very small green that has a lot of traffic consistently has lower organic matter, right? So we actually tell them to avoid that as a representative sample because it's screwed, it's it's skewed because, I almost said screwed, I said it anyway, Um it's skewed by the fact that, the, that that's where the traffic is in and around the hole. And if they're not rotating holes as frequently as they should, except during winter play and stuff, that organic matter can be two to 3% lower mm -hmm. just from traffic. Cause they've, they've beat it down, especially when you leave the verdure on, right. And which is the direction I think most of us are going. Um, so it's just so intriguing, I... intriguing to me, right. That, that we, we see the, the, the most optimally growing turf, um, and we still don't have that magic number, right? So if we knew that number, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to get it, I think it's going to be, I think you use the word site-specific again. It's got to be site-specific, and each course is going to be different. Because when Chaz did his work, you know, we had the superintendent fill out this extensive, the survey information. We got up into the, you know, New England, Connecticut, and um, there were greens there on these exclusive, really upper-end golf courses that were 9 and 10%. And mm -hmm. when you walked that, on that was those, going was, down to three inches, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was going down to three inches, but they were old enough. So that entire zone, but I would love to know what they were at an inch or at the inch, first inch, second inch and third inch. I'd love to know what they were, but it just amazed me because I didn't see, you know, they were older greens, older varieties, push up that had been sand top crisp for a number of years. So they were essentially a sand root zone, but they looked fine at nine. 
but then mm-hmm. we get into the desert Southwest and they would be begging for, you know, their, their, their organic matter percentages were, we did a couple courses in, in, in New Mexico, my home state, and they were like two to two to 2.2%. It was a growing environment thing, right? Exactly. And, you know, those greens would have benefited from a little more organic matter. I don't think they worry about organic matter unless it's a heavily irrigated, highly fertilized green in southern New Mexico. I think they like having it, right? I I think so. Uh, yeah, Todd Lowe posted a picture on Twitter today that uh, shows turf is worse where it was sandier. And, uh, you know, he was speculating about why that might be. Maybe it's, you know, dr- uh, more drought stress in the sandier uh, turf, or maybe it was... Um, or in the sandier soil, or maybe it's a nutrient deficiency uh, or, or less vigorous turf that led to insect or disease or, or something. But there's like a sharp line. And he said this is because there's different soil types there. And it's it's uh, something that I see a lot in Asia, where so many courses are sand capped, the entire property is sand capped. And man, it is, uh, it is sand is just not a very good growing medium for turf and so if you don't if you have sand with no organic matter in it and you start trying to make a golf course um or a sports field or what or a lawn or whatever you need to feed it all everything it's like it's on life support uh when it's growing in sand but once it has that or enough organic matter in the soil all of a sudden now it can function and uh i think yeah mike that's a, a really good point let me I'll add to it real quickly, and then we have a question. Um, but okay. uh, but when we when we did the work um, on the growins, right, and we had a, a sand based root zone, eighty twenty traditional, and eighty twenty five with the five with a native soil, right, and and it met it still met USGA specifications and everything, and the the one that had the 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 not sand soil consistently grew in faster, did better, et cetera, right. Um, but what, what was even more surprising is that when we look at the organic matter content as we you know track it um, over time, we start seeing thing you know microbial numbers stabilize when we start seeing an organic layer in there, right? And there's you know you know particulate organic matter, which is organic matter from the plant you're growing. All of a sudden, the microbial counts got more stable, and they were predominant. They were dominated by the microbes that are beneficial as opposed to pathogenic. Prior to that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of microbial activity, but at the same time, we didn't get the nutrient retention. We didn't get the buffering of the pH. We have calcareous sands and our sands were seven, eight to eight, two. The, within three years, we got that that first inch um, down to about neutral. And it was because of the presence of the organic matter. So there's a point where we need to not obsess about getting rid of organic, but managing it, which is like what I think we've been trying to talk about today and as well as... I've read enough of your stuff to know that we're talking about managing it, not getting rid of it. That's right. But I, I used to be talking about, I thought I was talking about managing it, but I was just giving blanket recommendations and not ever checking what, what, where we were at. And now I'm saying we should check where we are and then only do enough work to like, if, if the turf is fine, then we should just do enough work to keep the organic matter at a similar level. And if 
if the surfaces are too soft and they hold too much water right near the surface, then I would suggest it would be reasonable to try to introduce a bit more sand and reduce the amount of organic matter. So if that's the case, measure where you're at, do some work to reduce it and measure it again to determine the effect of that work. And if you uh, find that your surfaces are a little bit too dry or too firm, which is a rare situation, but perhaps it would be the case in New Mexico or certainly for a brand new golf course in Bangkok or something, then I would say what you want to do is allow the organic matter to accumulate a little bit. But either way, I think that you should measure it accurately so you know what's happening and what the result is of the sand top dressing because you start looking at the amount of work involved, like Michael uh, has a comment where he's talking about sand, uh, which can be quite expensive. And it turns out that they got a good playing surface, even though they didn't do hollow tining. Hollow tining can be quite disruptive. Um, so like, if you need to do that stuff, then if you're testing accurately, you can absolutely find out if you need to do it and what the results are. But um, by doing the testing, uh, you can also find out if you can just kind of let it ride and not not do so much disruption. Yeah, and I, I, don't, you, I don't think we have enough information. I, I think you're correct. I, I wish we could make an easy recommendation. Well, if everything's good, you know, then A. If everything's not so good, a little bit of B, right? But I still think that we what we have to take into account is the accumulation when we say, okay, everything's good, but then... You know, if, if everything was static, Micah, I think then that would be the perfect idea. But I think sometimes we see shifts in superintendents or shifts in, and you, we can see those layers in the green when you sample those greens. So I think, you know, status quo is going to work only if everything else is consistent, right? Yeah, and I would hope, I, I think with the way people uh, come to manage now where they, they are paying attention to how much sand they're applying, um, where they're paying attention to what their exact nitrogen rate is, more and more people are measuring the clipping volume. Um, and, and so you, you can start to see how much nitrogen you're putting, how much that's causing the grass to grow above ground. If you're doing the OM2 type of testing and the type of testing like the USGA uh, project, I think is, is going to recommend, um, you're able to measure the same thing, that the same zone of the soil without anything excluded at time one and then at time two. And so the difference in organic matter there could also be looking at the, the production of organic material below ground or the dilution of it. Um, there's a little bit more math involved because you have to account for the effect of top dressing sand, but it's fairly simple math so, uh, so it can be calculated. So I think I, I'm quite optimistic about... Um, us being able to, um, I mean, of course, if superintendents change and if the way the work gets done, it changes, then you have to start over. But if it's the same turfgrass manager doing the, the same type of work, um, I, I've, what I've seen in the clients that I've been working with, where we look at this over time. So the longest time series I have now is about five years the organic material in the soil changes in a remarkably predictable way that even now s surprises me sometimes at how predictable it is based on the work that's been done. Because people, 
I, I mean, I think I'm all over the place. I, I feel like I'm all over the place here because this is such an exciting topic for me. Um, but one of the other things that I forgot to note down when, when you were talking earlier um, was, oh my, I'm going to completely, I'm trying to think back and I just had that whispering into my mind and now it's gone fleeting <laughs> away again. Um, let's see, what, what was it? What was it? There was something, there was something that I thought was particularly relevant, but I, I'm absolutely drawing a blank now. So rock, uh, I, wish I, could gotta, <laughs> I, I, that's going to come back to me. Um, in the meantime, uh, I've got, we've got a lot of questions and comments. So maybe we, let's see, what does Jeff say? You'll know this one. How, Jeff Whitmire says, um, has, has there been any work on the effects of regular rolling on the organic matter accumulation rate? So uh, what I do, what we know is that if, you know, nobody's done it like, and that's a great question, Jeff, but nobody's done actually done the work where we could talk about an accumulation rate. You know, they haven't done sequential sampling. We've done some, you know, rolled and unrolled sampling and consistently there's less organic matter in the rolled, depending upon the aggressiveness of the roller, et cetera. But, um, but nobody's actually done an accumulation rate in rolled versus non. And there's some value in that because, you know, rolling has become, you know, quite prevalent and some people are subbing, mowing, you know, subbing rolling for mowing and depending on certain situations and stuff. So it's a real relevant question. And I'm going to give you a non-answer. Unfortunately, we just know that under a rolled versus unrolled, that there's less organic matter. And I'm, we're talking about rolling for a season, not rolling one, one time event at the end of the year, the unrolled plots have um, more organic matter. And, and at the start of the year, did they have the same? Because if that's the case, then, then that, right. Yeah, I no, mean, they were the same. Right. I mean, they so, were adjacent to each other on a, you know, on a research green and, you know, they were, they may have been different by, you know, 0.1 or 0.2, but our greens are pretty consistent. If we're not putting any treatments down, they're pretty consistent at four and a half percent. And they both started, I think one started at four, two and one started at four, four. So, so you're not measuring the rate directly. You're just measuring no. the amount, but it's, it's implied from that, that the rate was different over that season, because if they started at the same level and were different at the end then they it it changed at different rates right but i think just I, I like his concept of a rate you know a rate of accumulation um because that would imply that if you continue to do it or at least maybe over interpreting but but if you continue to do it that would you reach a point where you're denuding the surface and we've seen rollers do that you know some of the more aggressive early rollers would do that and so i think it's a good number to think about obtaining and and, and i mean that's that's a doable sort of mm -hmm. thing. I've never really thought about it much. So I'm speaking out loud, Jeff, and I apologize if it's not making any sense. <laughs> oh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think it will make sense to Jeff. And before oh, that thought, that thought is just going in and out of my mind. And it, it's, and it's here before I answer any comments. Um, I, um, I want to say this one before before it escapes my mind the 
the amount of sand that we apply rock right like like this this has to be true doesn't it that if you apply no sand you don't have to apply so much nitrogen but in order for a surface to accept for example the let's imagine we're going to apply 40 cubic feet of sand per thousand square feet per year you have to have a relatively high nitrogen rate in order to have the leaves grow fast enough so that the canopy could actually accept that amount of sand or you'd have to do so much cultivation to put the sand to put that quantity of sand just so what i'm saying is you have to have a higher nitrogen rate in order to accept a certain amount of sand and still produce a playable surface and what what i suspect is that that leads to us spinning our wheels a little bit or chasing our tails sometimes with the organic matter management situation doing it the old way because we weren't measuring so accurately what the effect of the work was and people always end up putting more fertilizer when they core so that they get rapid recovery and when and it, so, i'm going to interrupt there only because i think when we see the recovery, when when we, when we measure recovery on hollow tines versus solid of the same diameter, right? Same ID and OD. So, you know, because obviously it's a solid, you know, it's got to essentially fit inside the hollow time, but um, so that we're remo removing or displacing the same amount of thing. You know, we see recovery. I think the, the hollow time, some of the reason we see the kind of numbers we do is that it's, it's pretty injurious, whereas a solid tine in a sand you know, sand shifts around, but you don't really shear roots. You're not pulling stuff out of the ground. Um, so when you think about that, that recovery is, we see quicker recovery with solid times than we do with hollow. I think every superintendent would tell you that, right? Mm -hmm. And that intrigues me because not only does it, it result in the same, you know, the equivalent amount of, uh, of uh, organic matter reduction, if that's what we're measuring, or the change in organic matter, um, but it doesn't cause that they're not waiting forever for the dimples to heal. Right. Mm -hmm. They heal up pretty quick. But if we, if we just talk just about top dressing, like don't, what, doesn't it make sense to you that if, if you were going to manage, let's say you're going to manage a research green. If you put twice as much sand, you need to have a higher growth rate in order to accept that sand. Oh, I, I, yeah, I think that's really true. And I, when you earlier were talking um, while we were live and, you know, Hey, I we're saying rock, we're rock, we're rock. We're still live. We are, <laughs> we're live right now. No, I understand that. But I mean, <laughs> we were talking before and I, I can't separate the two because I've been talking, you know, we were on about 10 minutes before Micah, you know me, I've yeah. got a little bit of a motor mouth, but, um, but when, when we think about that 40 rate, I just, I can't even imagine that. But then I think about how, you know, when I first started at Michigan State, you know, in 80s, the 80s, they were putting on eight pounds of nitrogen on bent grass greens per thousand yeah. square feet. I mean, nobody well, does that anymore. Thank God. So some I'm, of that, I, I think that 40, that 40 cubic feet rate should go away and we should forget it ever happened. Yeah. Well, the, the green section record had an excellent article, I think in 2000, 19 perhaps 19. um and they they silently uh, adjusted down to 25 to 35 and they never referred to the previous um numbers um but 
I, yeah, I'm just so intrigued with the site specific way of doing it of like, let's just measure where we're at and let's decide how we're going to manage our property. And, um, so now that I remembered that now that, that I'm, I'm so glad that I remembered that, um, point that I wanted to make about the, the nitrogen rate can, can possibly be even lower, which would lead to less organic matter accumulation. Possibly what, before we, before I show any more comments and, and, and discuss any of those, um, you may know the answer to this. If I apply a lower nitrogen rate, does that allow the soil microbes that break down soil organic matter and mineralize in to be proportionally a little bit more or relatively a little bit more active? That's an interesting question. I don't really have an answer. I, I would, I would suppose that's true, Micah, but I don't know specifically anything to contradict that, but I don't want anything to, to enforce it either. I mean, because common sense, common sense would say that. Yeah. I, I, I don't think, I don't know that there's been research about that in turf grass. Um, I think there's probably something in, you know, the soil biology and biochemistry type of journals um, that would show that for agricultural soils or forest soils or something like that. But I, I guess, but you know, that, that goes beyond my area of expertise. But I think, I think there may be something where if we would just top dress a little bit less, it would allow us to put a little bit less in. In fact, Chris Tritabal had a great blog post this morning uh, that he just uh, put out where he's, he's noticed over the past few years when he's cut back on the in-season top dressing, he's still top dressing, but he does most of it in the autumn and a little bit in the spring. And he's not doing top dressing through the season. And he said he's got much less summer decline than he than he had in the past. He hasn't had to cut back on double cutting or rolling or anything um, during the summer because he said the grass just doesn't get damaged as much. And he's also like, but in the past, because he was putting sand uh, in the in the season, in the summer, he thinks that there was some mechanical damage that everybody just accepts as normal. And, and he thought it was all normal, but now he's like, whoa. That problem kind of went away. So that's that's something, you know, an anecdote um, that it seems to make sense. And I think if you do that, you can cut your nitrogen a little bit more and then maybe your, so you don't have to put so much sand. So then your organic matter doesn't accumulate so much. It's like a vicious cycle of finding a really nice site specific way to manage. Well, and don't you think, I mean, I, I you know, I, I've only met Chris once and I, you know, I follow him on, Twitter, obviously, and see some of the stuff he posts and talk to other superintendents and conversations like this. But I think that's what he's done. He's trying to develop that optimal site-specific management, you know, and I, and I always get a little concerned, not with Chris's, but, you know, I've had, I've seen superintendents say, oh, this is all we do. And then it becomes local and then it becomes more widespread. And yet you, you see as many failures as you do positives. But let's go back to the term you used earlier. It's site-specific. You know, let's Let's get the data that we can to make the right decision, which is, I think, what you're saying, and and then and then go from there. Not just assume because it works here, it should work here too. And and because you know, myself or Frank or you know somebody did some work on it, and you know it worked there in a in a study or it worked on a golf course. You know, that's that's every one of these things is a unique biological system, right? I mean based on whatever happened before the superintendent got or whatever he or she has done during that time frame. 
Um, and so, so when I, the, the, some of the superintendents, I think that are the best at what they do are, are not constantly, but they're pragmatically looking at. So if I do this, let's see what happens, you know, to see what happens to organic matter. Let's see what happens to clipping volume or let's see what happens on whatever. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not rushing a decision and then, and then not collecting enough additional data to say, yeah, this appears to be working, you know, solely on its own and not because I'm doing these other things that I'm doing concurrently, right? So I, I think that's where we see the, and Chris strikes me as somebody that's like that, right? Let's see what this is doing before we decide yeah, that he's doing the he's, right thing, right? Yeah, he, he tries different things and uh, sees sees what happens. So that's, that is, um, that is true. Um Let's see. We've let's see what what did Jason say? I'm going to read some of these. Jason said Jason Haynes wrote, "We have never applied less sand over the past few years and the greens have gotten better. Worst green has lowest total organic matter material and best has the highest." Yeah, that's that's awesome. It's it's kind of scary though because the type of numbers that we're talking about now um, in the top two centimeters or, or the top 0 0.8 inches, um, you know, they're, they're higher than what Bob Carroll said, uh, worked in the transition zone, right? Cause he was saying 4% max and you know, the previous research from the UK and from New Zealand New has Zealand. led, that has led in those countries to kind of use 6% as the top number so they're always recommending to be six percent or lower but jason i think the at the most recent testing was above six percent but the greens have never been better so that's where it goes back to site specific right instead of chasing after these numbers that work in new zealand or that work in atlanta or that work for a lynx course in uh, scotland maybe we can just say our greens are have never been better let's keep them that way so it's fun so i have a slide that i use in a, in a you know i've given talks on organic matter um a lot and at one of the slides i show you know is i say is 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 organic matter content the green speed of the new millennium because you know people are saying oh my greens i've had superintendents tell me my greens are lower than three and a half and i'm like but you're still having issues so maybe maybe that isn't correct but and they're going to be elevated based on the way we've shifted conceptually gone away from the standard, you know, soil science society of America sampling technique and leaving the verdure or the top growth on. And it's like you said earlier, you know, when you're talking about an agro agronomic system where you're growing corn or be beans or soybeans or whatever, right. You're, you're, you're not, you're less concerned about that. They're already are characteristically lower organic matter soils and they want organic matter. Well, and, and at the end of the day, we've got, we've just, you know, the issue here is, is moisture content at the surface. And we were excluding that in the conversation when we sampled them and took that off. So now we've gone away from that, but, and we're going to have higher numbers. So it's not, I don't think it's fair to us to say Bob's four and a half, and I'm, you, you weren't saying this, Bob's 4%. We don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter because what we know now is we've got the technology to be more specific to the location where we are and track that relatively easy and fairly economically but we didn't have that before because used to be you sent it off to a lab and 
And you don't even know what they do with the sample once it gets there, right? Some people don't, you know, they don't even know that once they send it there, things can happen to it that'll compromise the end, end result, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's what led me to start doing the OM246, actually, because I was doing a hydrogen peroxide test to see if hydrogen peroxide treatment was reducing the organic matter and uh, we designed the experiment and sent the samples to a lab and uh, I did lots of work beforehand to make sure that the samples were going to get treated the way I thought they were going to get treated and it turned out the numbers came back and it was like 1.68% and I was like that's that that's too low there's something wrong with the number and so I checked with the lab again and sure enough they said well even though the protocol doesn't list it we, we passed this one through a four millimeter sieve because it has to be according to a certain standard or something. I'm like, I didn't want anything taken off. <laughs> I wanted to measure everything. You know, it's like, I mean, you brought it up, so I'm going to talk about it. So, we, you know, we did a little funded once again by the USJ. So they, they are venturing into this zone quite a bit. But, you know, we tried to come up with a method that would be the equivalent of you know, the sampling techniques we've talked about, the, the new adjusted ones, leaving the verdure on, um, you know, not, not taking a, arbitrarily taking a three or a six inch sample. And we could never even come remotely close, plus the variability was so high using even 30% hydrogen peroxide. But you seem to have had better results for that. So I'm intrigued with that. We could not what? get it to degrade. Oh, oh, I, you, we're talking about hydrogen peroxide now. Um, yeah, because you did. You brought it up. And so I, I've been wanting to ask you about this for a long time because, you know, if you, we were trying to develop a method because I remember a picture that Jason Haynes had on Twitter got a number of years ago where he was using a blowtorch to try, to try to ignite his own organic matter, right? And I was like, wow, I wonder how that works. And, and he and I talked to one of the GISs. I know he's listening, but um, it, it just intrigued me because I'm like, well, what if we could come up with a method that somebody could do, you know, a little, you know, high school chemistry going on or whatever and hydrogen peroxide made some sense to me but we can we get inconsistent and very highly variable burns and we'll call it a burn for lack of a better term when we use and we've used everything from you know 7 15 and 30 percent of hydrogen peroxide and you got to get that 30 percent from another source well but. this is a, yeah this is a, a great topic um i uh Right. So, so laboratory methods, I think you take like, um, 50%, you take commercial, um, industrial grade hydrogen peroxide. And I've read the methods. In fact, I talked with Glenn O'Beer about this when I visited, um, uh, uh, Lincoln in, uh, six years ago. And because I was curious about that and he was doing some mineralogy work and he knows the chemistry and stuff. And I was like, is there like a method that you use hydrogen peroxide? He said, yeah, it's right in the method. I said, okay, please send it to me. So he sent it and you have to heat it. So when you're doing x-ray diffraction or something for soil mineralogy, you can't have any organic material in there. And the standard method to get rid of the organic material is to um, use a concentrated hydrogen peroxide and, and you heat it. Um, and I, I don't know how hot that is, but that is eventually it's going to burn off or decompose all of the 
organic matter. And now, the, operative, the operative word is eventually. Remember, our objective was to develop a method of superconducting could use, and it, it, we would get it to go away, but it was about a thirty-hour process. And we use okay. we use the same method. I guess what I got it from Glenn as well, right? You know, because I mean, he's such a brilliant chemist, and uh, and he said, "Oh yeah, this will work." But it, it's a pretty it's a pretty industrious methodology and we were trying to look for you know you could have this little kit and you could measure your own organic matter and it uh, it, it it would not be appropriate for anyone to have they would have to have better equipment because you know the water the, the 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 heat has to be at a specific temperature and you know etc it's not going to replace sending into a lab and doing loss on ignition it's just yeah, the bottom the, the loss on ignition is is such a simple uh, yeah. test and so many labs can do it and it's pretty easy to standardize that procedure um the um i guess i know in europe there's there's a lot of or well there yeah there's multiple facilities that are getting good results with treating their greens with a hydrogen peroxide drench um on a repeatedly and i i actually have been doing some testing to try to figure out if this is reducing organic matter or not what I do know is that they are getting good results with it because I can vouch for that from seeing it myself. Um, but I, I wonder, uh, the question that I have is whether the res good results that they see is because of the hydrogen peroxide on its own or because of some of the other things that they do that go along with it, such as um, less nitrogen application and less scarification and less sand top dressing so you see some of the other comments that we've seen of people saying yeah i put less sand and the greens are better than ever or the organic matter goes up and the greens are better than ever so maybe you know it's hard to separate cause and effect but in fact i have some samples in a certain country in europe that i need to get some paperwork ready for so they can send to the lab to test this um that we have one sampling from uh may of this year um and they've been treating with hydrogen peroxide all all year so let's see there's all kinds of questions and comments i i don't think we can address all of these right now aldo says i look swagged tf out well i know the t i know what the tf out stands for i don't know what swagged means what does swagged mean rock well, I mean, usually is swag. Is that American like, slang? Yeah, that's sort of like, uh, you know, if you've got really good swag, you know, somebody's given you a really good gift and you look really good wearing it and, or you look really good, you know, with some well, I'll, bling or I'll, something like that. I'll, I'll take that as a compliment then. Thank you, Aldo. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm scrolling back. Uh, let's see. Jason said... Oh, he started talking about sand particle size. I'm just trying to follow along here. Um, so I'm scrolling back. Jason said, I wonder if instead of chasing organic matter targets, we first ensure that our sand particle size distribution is adequate. Okay. Less fines, more coarse particles than we get with light and frequent sand. All right. I, I agree with that in concept. Well, and there's some really good data out there now that, I mean, Jim Murphy at Rutgers has six years worth of data now. And, um, you know, he shows that the greatest surface performance, including volumetric water content and all of the above in terms of uh, 
is when when they use a medium course, which would be would be the direction that Jason was implying there. And then when if they use only the you know the light frequent type sands, we call it a G sand around here, but it's medium fines or fine mediums um, is how they classify them. Um, that that you see you know greater surface moisture and some other things that are just not desirable for playability, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about playability. Um, but you throw a medium coarse um, aerification in spring and fall, and he only used coring, so that's all I can refer to. But all of a sudden, those negative tendencies of those fines, because we're talking about surface moisture, that's we're trying to regulate that along with health of the green, but we're trying to get that to a point that the ball performs the way it's supposed to, the golf ball performs the way it's supposed to. And, and um, if surface moisture is high, if you can squeeze moisture out of your organic matter layer, it's probably time to do something about it. Um, and if you can't, and you, you know, you, you perform as well at a, you know, at a, at seven or 8% with the new methodology, that's not uncommon. Um, and I think we're shifting methodologies as well. So we need to make that very clear, but you know, it's particle size does matter. Um, and, and, in terms of that's green performance, not agronomics. Excellent. Um, I see there's some more comments about this. Michael Anthony Gordon, if you want to talk about somebody who's swagged out all the time, uh, Michael Anthony Gordon, who I've had to, a chance to meet at a couple conferences in Denmark this year, um, makes me look like an amateur when it comes to dress and fashion uh so uh he's he's quite good in that area so michael says if you if you use less nitrogen the micro activity will inevitably be higher um i think that's what we'd like to think um and actually if you if you put more nitrogen you'll make more microbial activity up to a point um and I'm I'm kind of interested in what type of microbes are are, are proliferating in the soil. It, it's it's quite complicated that topic. Maybe Larry knows if Larry Stoles is watching. Maybe he knows a good answer about that. But uh, that's one that I I think it it's likely it's likely that if you put less nitrogen, uh, but still some, it it probably is is stimulating the breakdown of the thatch in a way that that we would like but it's all very speculative i hate to i hate to just like say probably doing something like that i'll let you say probably and i'll just nod my head how does that sound good yeah you have a very important job title and i would hate to yeah you you can just uh let me do all the speculation here uh <laughs> let's see now larry larry said what do you think about the shape and size of the organic matter playing a role in the reaction of the surface to ball impact and the role of small organic particles versus stems and leaves? Shape and size of the organic matter. Yeah, I don't ever think about shape and size, Larry and Micah. I, I think about, you know, how lignified or how degraded is it is and because ultimately it becomes a fairly uniform within each of those categories in particle size so I, I, i'm not i'm not sure i fully understand what larry's asking 
Yeah, I'm. I think of organic matter as it breaks down into humic material, um, that it would just kind of clog all the pores, which is where we were 25 years ago with what Bob Carroll was finding in the southeast, especially in the summertime, that the, um, you know, he was saying it would form like a gelatin type material that you just couldn't grow uh, roots in. But that is in a particular kind of climate and temperature. My, this this is crazy. See, we do these live streams, Rock. Look at all these comments. Oh, I know. I can't keep up. Well, it's nice that we have all these comments. Mike Kelly says that I was swagged out at Oregon State. Boots, trucker hat, briefcase. How can anybody remember all of that? Mike, you've got a great memory. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Mike. I I saw a pretty picture. I think he's at a... a, uh, very snowy location in Wyoming right now. It was a beautiful picture he sh- that I saw recently. Um, so can we go what... on to Larry's next one? Because I have, I want I have a question for Larry. If we can like flip the question, because he says turf systems are carbon rich, so more N should stimulate microbial activity, and that's a hundred percent documented and, and well documented. My question is: is when do you what at what point in time do you does excessive N either from the plant itself, you know, from degradation and release or from excessive nitrogen in the system. Isn't there a point where you actually inhibit um, microbial activity when the N is way too high? The balance is all messed up. Um, Larry, oh, here we go. Larry... Uh, Larry's responding about the H2O2. Um, I, I think, yeah, Larry says, good question. Um, I I think within the range of nitrogen that actually gets applied to golf course turf, it would be rare to ever apply that much that you would really depress the microbes. But I think it's, uh, you know, for, for sports turf or something where they they apply a lot more nitrogen. That could be the case. Well, and I think when we like historically, when we were, I mean, I know, you know, the, the, the breeders have done a great job with new genetics and all of the above, but I, I think that there's still certainly still aggressive pathogens out there, but at the same time, I think a lot of the improvements in addition to genetics with the disease resistance are because we're not putting on, eight pounds per thousand anymore. Thank God. I mean, historically, that's where we were at. That, that's just crazy. Because the grass didn't need it. I mean, the growth was good. You know, the faster they grew, the better. If you're collecting a lot of clippings, that was good. But that was a totally different mentality in the 70s and 80s that we don't see now. Yeah, that was a that was a, uh, a different time. I remember Nick Christian's uh, PhD work and it was just like the more nitrogen you apply the more potassium you have to apply but then they get up to rates of like 12, 16, 18 pounds of N and K or something and you're just like but so so then the conclusion is based on you know if you have high N you need high K but it's like but nobody today would even come close to to treating their grass like that 
No, and we're also understanding that, you know, that, and we've shifted gears off the, off the topic, Mike, I'm sorry, but, you know, we, we, you know, when we show the residual nitrogen in a grain at five, six, seven, eight, and nine years in our data, I mean, man, there's a lot of residual nitrogen in that organic matter. So that's a, an added plus to the organic matter when we get that microbial stabilization that we've measured and the micro and the, and the organic matter is, is, you know, three to 5%. And that was in the old methodology. I'll qualify that. Um, and you're releasing about a pound and a half of nitrogen a year. So if you were normally putting on three, you should certainly go to two or one and not lose any nitro nitrogen benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, be, before I forget, I'm, I'm going to ask you, is what is the update on the USGA uh, OM method? And is that method going to be very similar to what I do with the OM246? Um, if, you, if you can disclose that. I, I, I can sure enough to know because we've been, you know, we had a student, one of uh, Doug Soldat's students um, presented at the at the national, the golf, not, excuse me, not golf, uh, the agronomy meetings in Baltimore. One first place for his presentation. Uh, Travis Miller did an amazing job. Um, and, but it, 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 I think when I was sitting there watching him give his presentation, I'm looking back and I'm looking at, you know, some of the patriarchs and matriarchs of turf, you know, academics and whatever. And, and I'm sitting there, sitting there nodding their heads like, and, I'm, and, and that's great because we are starting to look at this method so that we come to terms with the fact that the methods we were using were archaic and designed for agronomic crops. But to answer your question, I think there are several things that you suggest that are going to fall into place with what we ultimately see. Is, is that enough of an ego booster for you, Mike? <laughs> <clears throat> well, that, that sounds kind of vague. I, I just, I just hope that what, uh, what the USGA recommends isn't so different that it invalidates, uh, the data that, that we're working with right now. Um, Oh, no, I think you'll be very pleased. And I'm being very ambiguous and I apologize. But, you know, this is the method we have to both scrutinize it through, you know, referees, academics and whatever, and then we'll get it published and then we'll have the method. Right. We're, we're, you know, now right now we're working on, you know, um, we're pretty sure we know the answer, but we've got to document it so that we can put this through ASTM because their rigor is like ridiculous. But I think you're going to find that a lot of what you're the majority of what you have changed um, and are using currently for your work is going to be validated. Well, good. I'm, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, is this is not something that I invented. I just copied what they were doing in New Zealand. But the difference is, I said, I don't want to cut the verger off because the way that it's, um, or the verdure, uh, is we have... Uh, yeah, maybe somebody can correct me on my pronunciation. I, I hear it both ways. But um, all the above-ground plant material on a putting green sample that's been top-dressed, you've got sand mixed in with that. It's just, I find it, uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to remove that. So no, and it that's the only difference. Yeah, yeah, but and this is the thing. I mean, if you, if you recall, Micah, you were asked to join the group and, and help us out a little bit. You're too busy. And, you know, so we're, we're going to, Oh, I, I think, I think that's a miscommunication between myself and, uh, Brian Whitlark. Um, oh, really? I, all I said was I didn't want money for it because I didn't feel 
that I didn't want the pressure to have to deliver anything that I been paid for because because I'm too busy. I, I didn't decline to join the group. I just that that was my understanding of the communication. So if if that was taken as a no, then perhaps I wasn't clear enough about it. But but I just didn't I didn't want to be involved with with money because then I would feel like oh no I've got a deadline to meet and I've already accepted money for this. Yeah, maybe it's not too that. late. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe I can get involved. <laughs> well, I think we're going to try to publish this probably in six months. I think we're going to be ready in six months with a, with a method. But um, we'd certainly like you to review it. And, and I mean, we, you know, it's difficult to cite a lot of your stuff because we, we just go to your website, right, and give the link. But we, we talk about what you propose and include it in the discussion. Well, nice. I will. I keep telling Doug, every, you know, I see Doug every six or nine months or something. And I'm like, Oh shoot. Cause I've already done the, like at 13 different golf courses, tested verger on and verger off with multiple samples. And I've already done the, uh, the, um, you know, the, the testing of what if we do 30 samples on one green? What if we do one sample on one green and modeled that all out to get the sample size requirement? Um, and it's just like, I, I don't publish it because I don't have to. And I, I always tell Doug, oh, I need to put that data in a preprint or something so you guys can cite it. But then there's other things that, that come up. And yeah, there's there's that's why I don't want to get paid for it because the then I would actually have to, to deliver. No, and 100%, I understand. And, um, you know, I, I, you, the whole spatial variability and stuff, we've... We've gotten it down to, um, you know, based on some fairly, fairly aggressive and rigorous data that you don't need more than five samples and about 30 feet across and avoid problematic areas, areas where it doesn't drain. And the data is really strong in that regard. And that shocked me because I was always, I've always told superintendents, oh, you need 20, you know, in a grid pattern across the green. And now we're saying five samples, at least 30 feet apart from each other will represent the average golf course green. And it's exciting. It's an exciting time. I, you're, uh, you were the lead author on the chapter on organic matter in turfgrass systems in the latest uh, turfgrass monograph, monograph yeah. the agronomy monograph, which was 2014 or or something like that. Yeah, 2014. You're right. 2014, and that was a that was the article I think that really made it clear to me that the testing methods were all wrong because you you mentioned that straight out in that chapter but then just reading the chapter every single article that you cited every piece of research you cited it was either unclear what the method was so you the numbers become uninterpretable or they they were um, clearly different methods and so you have to try to connect the dots between things that can't be connected and it's just like man it's like with a lot of things in turf it's like how can we be in 2022 and and this is the state of of things but it's very promising that uh that we do have these new methods that uh people are getting good use out of and i think in the future they they will get great use out of yeah let's hope so i mean i'm i'm excited about it i'm so near retirement i hope we get it done before i walk away but um you know if this is the only thing i do i'll figure i'll figure out i've made a contribution right (laughs) <laughs> you've you've made all kinds of great contributions and i'm 
it's a pity Frank couldn't join us today. Um, but I think even though we were all over the place, um, I feel like it was, uh, we talked about some, some important topics and, and I did remember what I wanted to say finally. So that was good. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm, I want to wrap this up, uh, because we've been going for a long time, but before we wrap it up, I will say that anybody that wants to ask any more questions or something, go ahead and toss that into the chat and I'll see if we can get to it. And then I'm going to scroll through some of the old comments and see if there's any that I missed that I want to address here. Um, let's see. Thibault asked about uh, the concern that hydrogen peroxide would kill all the microbial activities in the soil. And Larry, I think Larry Stoll answered that with a comment that said soil microbes produce tons of catalase that is what makes the h2o2 foam it's not the microbes themselves that that uh, are foaming so larry says that microbes are prepared to address peroxides which is probably why hydrogen peroxide is not uh i mean maybe one of the reasons why it doesn't work as a as a fungicide um so well i don't know Larry, Larry will know, I'm sure. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not terribly concerned about that myself. Uh, Larry also said, when he was talking about the particle size, Larry said the stems at the surface that are also being analyzed in the top two inches. Yeah, I, I don't know. That particle size thing uh, is an interesting one. Oh, so, 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 yeah, that, I think I asked that question of Larry when he was talking about, um, you know, w what effect that has on, on ball performance, I think, if I remember it right. But I, I think that's a question for another day because I don't have an answer, Larry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't have an answer to that one either. Uh, Jason Haynes says, we commonly get areas with runaway organic matter production where it becomes like jello. Wow in areas that are excessively wet with poor organic matter breakdown. Yeah, I I think, yeah, that, that's something that I you can see on the West Coast. Um, it's almost like it's making a peat bog or something if it's in a wet area with poor organic matter breakdown. But hopefully that's not going to be happening on a green. If that's the case, I think it's not an organic matter issue. It's a drainage issue that would need to get dealt with yeah get that dried out and it's not going to have that but it does make me think about thatch collapse i'm just you know if we could isolate that organism that might you know and, and not have it cause some of the negatives it might cause but i mean I've, i hadn't seen thatch collapse until two years ago and i mean that's just crazy that you look at that if you take a sample from there and this was in a lawn i'll back that off right away but in a lawn and the organic matter in a in the area where thatch collapses is two to three percent lower than it is two inches over it's crazy. Yeah, but Michael makes a very good point. Michael Gordon says that's true, Larry, but if the N is way too high, it will affect microbial activity. That was in response to Larry's comment that uh, turfgrass systems are carbon rich, and so adding nitrogen should uh, stimulate microbial activity. Um, and But yeah, if, if the N is way too high, um, then you'll have salt problems and other things that would 
uh, be detrimental to microbes. I just think, I think in, in turf grass, we, I, I mean, in golf course turf grass, it would be rare to put that much nitrogen. It would be a mistake to put that much nitrogen that, that you would actually um, cause a problem with microbes. Dr. Larry Stowell has another comment or question. He says, do you see any impact between irrigation distribution and organic matter in the soil with relation to the high precipitation rate area in the center of the green, which has higher organic matter compared to the lower precipitation rate areas? Um, I have not measured this or paid attention to it, but it to me, it, it seems logical that that would be the case. Do you have any comments on that, Rock? No, I would agree. And it's Larry, thanks, because you actually gave us an idea because we have, you know, 15 greens on, you know, five greens for course, you know, five greens for course where we extensively sampled with inch and a half and three quarter inch sample samplers. Turns out you can do just as good a job with a three quarter as you can with a a one and a half inch sampler, but anyway, that aside, um, and we've got that data. We just haven't really looked at it that way because, you know, in general, we see the most precip falling generally in the center of the green, unless the green's a weird shape, because that's where all the sprinklers overlap. Right. And, and then the edges or perimeters, some of the other areas. So we, we, we've got those greens mapped. So it would seem we could probably, we could probably figure that out, Larry, but we don't have an answer for you. Good. All right, Rock. I'm I'm going to say that uh, let's let's bring this exciting conversation to a close, um, and let's see if we can get Dr. Rossi on to see if uh, he can add his insight when he's able to join us. Ah, uh, oh well. Let's talk. If if you can stay for a while, Rock, we can uh, answer Anthony's comment, uh, yeah, which I think is an this is this is an important one. Anthony Piopi says about three years ago there was a New York Times story on the worldwide shortage of sand, due in large part to dams preventing the natural flow of particles to the sea. Do you see this affecting golf, especially top dressing? Rock, you must uh, be familiar with some of those articles. Also with uh, the the demand for sand in construction. And other just like sand is important for a lot of things uh, that are involved with economic development. Oh, exactly. I love this question because I, I equate it to the, um, you know, the, the shifting of water from golf to, you know, often they shut down the turf and, and, uh, and they shift it right to, to food production, which, you know, we, we all need to eat, but at the same time, they make that heavy, but it's such a small percentage. When you look at how much actually is used in top dressing, um, and I don't have the exact number, but I, you know, I've done some estimates about how much sand is used for top dressing versus how much is used to make like a, a, a you know, a concrete base and foundation and sidewalls for the first two floors of a building. It's, we're not using that much sand. I mean, we really aren't. But will it affect us? We'll probably be the first ones. This is my opinion, my opinion only, uh, that we'll probably be the first ones they get told they can't have the sand or the price of the sand will go up so much. So that's a that's a great question, actually. But I let's hope that doesn't happen. But maybe it forces people to be more calculate, you know, use more math and what how they decide to put their sand on and not just don't put on the 40. Right. Or 
or the 30 with the new recommendation. I still think 18 to 22 is the is the number of choice based on survey information and our research, but it's certainly it's half of what was recommended, you know, 25 years ago. Well, that's your starting point number um, that works for a lot of grasses in a lot of places with the uh, types of growth rates that we have in the past decade or so. That that's your good starting point number, and then you can go get even more site specific once you get uh, to measuring what's happening in your soil. Yeah, I think the recommendations are a starting point, just like you say, Michael. Um, there, I did have. I thought I had something that was related to what Anthony asked, um, but my I should take notes faster or commit things to memory even better. What what was that? Sand, top dressing. Sand hmm. shortage. <laughs> I I uh, oh oh I got it. It there's another <laughs> environmental issue related with sand. If you, I think you know, uh, carbon emissions or, or carbon sequestration and w what a golf course property is in terms of is it sequestering carbon or is it um, emitting carbon? There is a large carbon cost in the transport of sand. And so when you look at um, Michael Beckin's research, who's also another one of Doug Soldat's grad students, um, the primary carbon emissions from golf course maintenance come from the operation of mowing equipment and if if i if i remember correctly uh so so primarily i mean the the greatest amount of emissions comes from mowing equipment and after that it i believe it comes from nitrogen fertilizer and after that it comes from sand top dressing so uh, there's an important issue in the future as the carbon emissions or the carbon status of golf properties will be more and more scrutinized as um, you know as all around the world will start looking at everything that we do and what the carbon uh, cost of it is and it turns out that mowing has a very high carbon cost unless that gets electrified um, but sand top dressing because of the transport of sand the mining and the transport of sand has a very high uh, carbon emissions so that's something that it makes sense, not only the economic cost, but also the carbon cost that one would want to reduce that. That's a really good point. That's a great student. Doug, Doug is doing some really cutting edge work at Wisconsin. I, I think he sees an unsung hero in that whole carbon um, partitioning and stuff and the work that's going on. But, it, you know, what we need to do is have these courses um, like the Sand Hills and the, and the um, you know, the courses that are close to a sand source, I don't think they're ever going to worry about the sand hills having top dressing sand because they've never bought a they've never bought a bucket of sand on that golf course, right? No, right. Yeah. There. <laughs> places places that have their own source of top dressing sand, you can use as much as you want. Uh, <laughs> they'll never Nobody's going to tell you you can't have it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, we're we're not signing off quite yet so if if you do want to ask a last minute question go ahead and and do that um but otherwise what else have you been 
What what did you speak about in Colorado, Rock? You were you were just at the Rocky Mountain Turfgrass Association conference. Did you talk yes. about this? Yeah. So they, um, Jim Murphy and I gave a three hour workshop on, um, you know, the the sand root zones and the evolution from, you know, the the when they were made like bowls and and we didn't have sand and moving on. A lot of it really relevant to this topic. And then I gave my um, with some newer data. So I, I gave my new talk on top dressing and some of the things we're finding out about um, that, about placing sand and the time types that you use. And we've got a real exciting study coming in next spring where we're going to look at a couple of methods. We're going to have the dry jack in it. And then we're going to look at a bunch of different time types, about 30, well, 26 different time types, because we amazingly found out that all this time we've been talking about the coring tine and the hollow tines of equal diameter, not being different when it comes to, organic matter management, we now find that the solid tine hole is compromised less. And if you measure organic matter content 24 hours after you put the treatment down, that um, the, the, the lowest organic matter is in the um, solid tining treatment of, of 10 treatments that we have, meaning is that, is that the, is that the slides that you sent me? Do you want yeah, me to show that? that yeah, those, would you like, would you like, so we have a few diehard people still watching us live. Would you like me to, to show those now? I have it. Yeah, if you want to, read. that'd be great. I could describe it. That'd be fun. Yeah. Could you, could you? So uh, I'm going to try to, I'm going to move the chat off the screen so that the slide shows a little bit larger. And so now the slide is showing. Um, could you describe what we're looking at here, Rock? Yeah, happy to, and thanks for letting me share these slides because this is the this is the, the next step for me. But we did this in 2021. We had a, you know some uh, a plot where we did nothing, and then we had a hollow with half inch ID and solid with a half inch OD, so they were equivalent displacement or removal. Um, we had a dry jet on a three by three spacing, a needle tine by itself in a in a quadratine setup a dry jacked two treatment, which was a three by two, which was a little more aggressive. And then we combine needle with solid and needle with hollow. Cause we've got some data that shows that needle plus solid um, doesn't take any longer to heal up and it, and it actually has lower organic matter. And then we used a pro core with a three inch target depth on all times, except the dry jack, which was set on five. And we sampled literally within a day after treatment in one depth increments to four inches. So we had four samples um, per, um, well, more than that, but basically we sampled it in inch increments. Um, okay. Across the, right. And so that's, that's like the OM246, but it's in inch increments instead of in centimeters. Yeah, right? it is 246, but it's, uh, it's in, it's in uh, English units. Okay. So the, can I move to the next slide now? Yeah, yeah that'd be fine. All right. So these are, are the results these are the results and those of you that you know follow data know that we want if we want differences we want different letters and the untreated check was at four and a half percent um which is typically what we see in our greens with no treatment on them anywhere from four two to four six but generally around four five uh the hollow what was 3.7 um so it was different than the check but not by much oh the wait a second was, wait a second did did these get top dressing also? Or? Yeah, they all got sand, right? They all got sand. So I thank you, Micah. So 
we know now that with solid tines, you get more sand in the profile if you put the sand down before you punch the hole, right? Or, mm -hmm. Right. So we put the sand down on the on the um, solid tine treatment before we ran the air fire over it. Um, and then and then we top dressed the entire area and then brushed it all off and blew it off so that, you know, they were all receiving the maximum amount of sand that they could. That's a great question. And then the, there was no difference among depths, meaning not meaning that, you know, the first inch was was it's just that the trend. So that so that allowed us to combine the data. That's a little mm -hmm. uh, misleading to people. But at the end of the day, we could combine all the depths because, you know, the depth at four was the same across all treatments. They broke, would have broken out this way and the depth mm -hmm. at three. So we combine them all. So it's four and a half percent. Um, and that's certainly not the amount of organic matter that was in that top bench. It was higher than that. But so the mm -hmm. hollow tine um, was different, but not by much. The needle tine was even lower than the hollow tine, which was a little bit surprising to me. But when you do a, a displacement measurement, it is actually higher. Uh, the dry jet, I just wouldn't have thought the, the needle tine would take the sand that well. The dry jet on a three by three was the next. Well, dry jet three by three, needle and hollow, dry jet three by two, needle and solid. And solid were all the same statistically, but the lowest number just intrigues me because it's the solid time, which implies mm -hmm. to me that the solid time treatment in this scenario um, took more sand. It had more sand in it. That's, I find this really intriguing. I, and this is I, this is measured. The organic matter was measured how how long after the treatment? Twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. Wow. That's. That's a huge difference to go oh, from the, 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 did the check get top dressing or not get top dressing? It, it got sand, right? But it didn't get, it, it, the, the idea here, the objective was to find out if you do X, how much sand can it take, right? How okay. So sand? you, you, you put the amount of sand that would fill the holes and then you swap the rest off. Is that right? Right. And, 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 and so the check plot got sand top dressing. We, we, we did a light verticutting. We always do that for our, on our checks. We've lightly verticutted the entire area and then top dressed, um, including the solid time, but we did that in a different sequence, right? So they got a light verticutting so that they would take some sand. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that I just, it was shocked me when the hollow time wasn't that much different than doing nothing at all, except a light top dressing with verticutting. Man, you will uh, you will generate some outrage. Uh, <laughs> you will generate some outrage if you say that holotine does nothing. Uh, I've had some blog posts about that of like, yeah, if you holotine, it it doesn't do what you think it does. And uh, some people are like, yeah, you're right. I I know that too. But other people are like. No, thank you. I'm going to stick with what I've been doing. Um, they almost take it personally, don't they? <laughs> yeah, and it's I find just it like, almost humorous. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's 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 exciting. I uh, I'm so glad that you were able to make the time to talk with me today and to share this information with so many people. I'm going to release this as a podcast, so some people might listen to it in the future. Other people may watch it on YouTube. I have a recommendation for that. Uh, for both podcasts and watching on YouTube, you can adjust the speed and listen to them at, at a faster speed and get through these long, long conversations uh, faster. So you can consume more, more material. And uh, I appreciate and, the invitation. I hope we can get together with Frank maybe after the holidays. Yeah, we're going to, we, we have 
busy travel schedules at this time of year and conferences and holidays and stuff. And, uh, but yeah, we, we will hopefully be able to talk with Frank soon. And I'm sure that he will add an entirely uh, new dynamic to this conversation and, and give all kinds of, of good insight and uh, probing questions and, and so on. So no doubt. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks everybody. We've, uh, I, I can do the chat overlay again. There's been a few more comments in the chat. Uh, Tebow says, thank you. It was very interesting. Larry says, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Larry, for joining. No doubt. But yeah, we've got three continents here. I think Tebow's in uh, Algeria or, or something. So I think he's in Morocco. Michael's in Northern Europe. That would explain why we had good greens with just solid. Yeah, could be. I mean, Michael, you you figure out site specific what works for your site. Um, so I mean, some place, not everywhere in the world, is going to have good greens with just solid tine. Um, but <clears throat> ah, Tebow in Ireland. All right, Yawata-san from Japan. Wow, thank you, everyone. I enjoyed that. That is excellent. We've got people from all over. Uh, Larry was from California, so. Good. All right. Well, instead of just threatening to sign out, I will cue up the Christmas music now. And I will say to Rock, thank you so much for joining. To everybody who joined us live, thank you so much. Uh, if I don't talk with you uh, before the holidays, then I wish a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to everyone. And yeah, we will try to get back with our original uh, three-person office hours with Frank Rossi sometime. So anyway, everyone, thanks so much for joining us. And we will uh, talk to you again soon with more interesting turf grass topics. Thanks and bye-bye. <laughs>